All right, so let's uh, get going here. Um, give you a, an update on what's going on for the moment. Um, we have uh, we have four thousand dollars that uh, we're and we've already we contributed previously. I had I, I contributed a thousand to them, and we're taking four thousand with us for Bibles. So uh, we'll be leaving to go to tomorrow to go to Cuba and we'll see what happens. Apparently there's a ton of Bibles in port but they can't get them to shore because they're 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 short of diesel. So they're waiting for shipments of diesel to come in so they can ferry the the, the, the Bibles from the the boat I guess. Is, at least that's what I've been told now. Why that? Why that's the case? I have no idea. It seems to me there ought to be a harbor. You pull up to the harbor, and you're, you know, they must be they must be out of ways from there. So, I don't know. Well, Kensington had uh, has been there once, at least that I know. Of, maybe several times. Uh, Chris Zarbal, I know, has been there, and so we contacted um, one of the people in the global partnership here at Kensington they put us in contact with an organization that uh, um, is in various places around the world but one of the places is Cuba so we have a contact that we're working with and uh, and so we're going to be there and we'll see what happens pray for us uh, uh, it could be that Paul and Silas will be sinking in prison we never know uh, that'll be a about a week. We're gonna next Tuesday. We're not meeting. <clears throat> uh, that being said, I have a. Um, uh, we need to update the bagels. So let me just, uh, if you don't mind, I'll pass a sheet around. I'm gonna give it to Gary here, if you don't mind, Gary, and make sure that gets to the various tables. We're in Philippians chapter two, and um, we are. Um, we're, we're going to shoot for finishing up 5 through 11 today. Uh, we started it last week. Uh, we'll do a, a slight recap and then dig into the rest basically from 9 on. But we've got some things to say uh, about the first few things. And then, we'll, uh, and then we'll do some application. I think there's some strong application out of this passage as for what, uh, what it can mean to us in, in contemporary settings today. So we'll see if we can apply it and make sense out of it. Um, anyhow, let's start with a word of prayer. Then when we're done with that, we'll read just 5 through 11. Uh, Denny, John, and uh, Gary, I'm having a, a brain freeze here. Gary, uh, Daryl, if we have to get that far. And then I think we'll uh, we'll we'll be good to go. We'll just read, as I said, the first uh, 5 through 11 today. But let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the way you continue to guide and direct in our lives. And we pray that you will bless the, uh, the trip, that things will go well, uh, that uh, we'll be able to uh, meet with people and uh, have the ability to uh, make contacts. We pray again for your uh, grace uh, in this time and the Holy Spirit would speak to us where we need to be encouraged and challenged and convicted. We ask again your blessing upon us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, we're in chapter 2 of Philippians, starting in verse 5 through verse 11. Okay, all right. So last week we talked a little bit about the whole concept of who Christ is as he is, he is of being God and then he is being made man. And I find it interesting that he made himself nothing as one of the translations says, but it's kind of a paradox if you think about it. He's being made nothing means that they added humanness to his deity versus destroying subtracting deity from his person it it's kind of a strange when you start thinking about it it's kind of strange uh at least for me and then you have uh this idea of he goes from being a servant uh to becoming a human and being in the very nature uh, of a servant it speaks of an attitude uh that produces an action and we talked about that remember that that attitude creates action and that uh, the attitude is, is the thing that starts the ball rolling. So uh, I think it's important that we remember that. We remember that, uh, uh, that this passage does a couple of things. First of all, it, it, uh, it affirms Jesus' preexistence. He is God. Uh, secondly, it, it affirms the fact that he became human. Um, he entered into a permanent relationship, a permanent union with humanity that uh, that once he did so he, there could be no escape he willingly humbles himself uh, that he can lift us up which is pretty cool when you think about it we have no way back to God nothing we can do in and of ourselves and yet God chooses to make a way it's the old song that is probably from the 90s uh, there's a song that Don Mullen wrote called God Will Make a Way When There Seems to Be No Other Way. And, and that's, that's so true. That's what God does. God steps out of, out of eternity into time. And after, you know, spending th 33 years here, three years of ministry, he dies on a cross, is buried, rises again on the third day, ascends to heaven, and God gives him a name that's above every name. And that name is, by the way, what? Lord. Lord. <clears throat> All right, let's see. Let's keep going here. You know, I think one of the things I take out of this is that ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Um, I, was, uh, I was looking at uh, when we were in... in um, Jerusalem, we were going through certain shops out in the street and so forth, and you could buy trinkets for, you know, next to nothing if you wanted. 
and uh, they were selling crosses and all sorts of different things, you know, some of it uh, carved out of olive wood or, or various things. And, um, um, you know, so often I think the problem is that we think that uh, we're looking for cheap crosses, you know, uh, that you can take back as souvenirs versus realizing that the Lord's cross was not cheap and ours isn't going to be either. Our cross is not cheap. It costs us something. If it doesn't cost us anything, it wasn't worth a whole lot, was it? Real quiet. Okay. Um, a person with a submissive mind does not avoid sacrifice. He lives for the glory of God and the, and the good of others. And if paying a price will honor Christ and help others, he's willing to do it. You know, it's interesting that today our young people are looking for something that's bigger than themselves. I think every generation does that. We look for something that's bigger than ourselves. And one of the interesting things about communism is that communism never gave a person a menial job. It was always a very important job. It had to be done. It had to be accomplished. And, and, and the goal of communism would not be met without this person being involved in whatever that job was. And the thing is, I think that it says this, that they, they get a good response when you say to people, we need for you to, to live for something larger than yourself, for something that's more important than you, for something you're willing to give your life for. And the willingness to sacrifice, I think, is one of the most important uh, factors in success of many of the communist programs back in the beginning of the days of communism. It's also Yeah. Service. Is Service. All about what they do. Yeah. And that, that, by the way, that's not a bad thing. We need to challenge each other to do something that's going to be great for God. You know, I think the, the interesting thing is that one of the tests that someone has put up for a submissive mind is not just how much we're willing to take in terms of suffering, but how much we're willing to give in terms of sacrifice. Um, that's always hard, especially when it starts to hit your pocketbook, right? They don't want to. They don't want to dig too deep. And yet, the paradox. One, again, one of the paradoxes of Christian life is that the more that we give away, what happens? What's the paradox? The more we get back. The more we get back. Yeah. Uh, the the more we sacrifice, the more God blesses. Now. Does that mean that, you know, it's like a, a savings CD or something, you know? I deposit so much in the bank and I'm guaranteed a return and, and this is the return. It's going to be 2.5 or 3% or whatever. Is that what he means? Does it always mean that, you know, if I give money, I get money back? Is that what God says? No. Maybe oh. eventually. Maybe eventually. What, what, does it, what does it mean that God gives? If we give, God gives back. What does that mean? We trust him. We trust him, okay. What else? What does it mean? What do we get back? Blessings. Blessings. Are those good things? Maybe shalom. Maybe shalom, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe true peace. Morally candy. Morally candy. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. So let me ask you this. If what you're doing doesn't cost you anything, is it 
Is that being a Christian if it doesn't cost you anything? Remember, cost is not just money. Cost is based upon what? Time, Time talent, and treasure. It's easy for me to remember because it's three T's. So Paul says that Jesus becomes a slave and, and he accepts crucifixion. Crucifixion is the worst thing that you can do to a person in, in the Roman Empire. It's, do you know that you could not crucify a, a Roman citizen? It was illegal. If you did it, you stood in fear of being crucified yourself, or maybe worse, if there was something worse. I don't know if there anything was in, in the Roman Empire. It was, it was reserved for people that revolted against the government and for slaves. And when we, see, when we read servant here in this passage, we are actually saying that Jesus Christ came to serve us, to be a slave for us. And it is a stumbling block for the Jews. Why? Because the Bible says in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So it becomes a stumbling block for the Jews, and the Gentiles can't even wrap their mind around it. That's what 1 Corinthians talks about, where it says that uh, it's a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. So, when God says here in verse 9, we're entering some new territory here a little bit, uh, that he exalted Jesus to the highest place, it actually means he super exalted him. That's the, the Greek, it talks about this. Some scholars think, think that there, this is a comparative sense in the sense that God exalts him more than before uh, and they seek a new position for Jesus. And I think there's some truth to that, perhaps, because prior to Jesus acting as a high priest, it does not say that he sat on the throne next to God. But after that, he sits on the throne. By the way, what's it mean when you sit on a throne? You're the king. Right? You're the king, and what else? You're, yeah, what else? That's good. What else? You're done. Yeah. You're also done. You don't have to stand. You stand because there's things you have to do. You sit when you're all done. You, you accomplish something. Now, as I get older, I tend to sit more than I stand, but that's just that's just my my age, I think. <clears throat> no, I have not accomplished nearly enough. Trust me. Now, this super exaltation occurs, I think, as a consequence of Jesus' voluntary humility. And these actions actually began in in eternity past. This was something that was decided by God before he even created the world. Think about that. Think about the fact that he knew that we would rebel. It wasn't like it was a surprise. Oh, no, what in the world did Adam and Eve do now? I can't believe it. No, he knew. He knew before the foundation of the world. He knew that we were going to fail. He knew that as a result of that, that the only way that he could have a relationship with us was that he had to save us. We could not save ourselves. Well, let's see. We can get you into something else here. So God exalts Jesus 
And I think it begins with the resurrection. He says that he gives them a name which is above every name. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Christ. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> the per One thing before you move on. Yeah. Um, stopping back a verse or two. In 7 and 8, I thought it was pretty cool. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. Mm -hmm. Like, it appeared to emulate Jesus as a human, then obedience to God would be key. key yeah, yeah. And the thing is that's interesting is that, that this is God the Son who gives up his rights as God to listen to and be obedient to the Father. So the question comes to my mind, if God the Son is capable of doing that, why is it that we're not? Or is it just me that has a hard time with obedience and submitting? It's interesting that God the Son can do it, and that's the example we're to follow. And remember, uh, uh, I think it's in Mere Christianity. It, uh, C.S. Lewis seems to indicate that the way that you become Christ-like is by attempting to be Christ-like. In other words, you purpose in your mind, I'm going to act like Christ does. The, the idea, and I realize it's a little kishy, kitschy, but the WWG, you know, WWJ, what would Jesus do, WWJD, how would Jesus respond to this is important in knowing that we need to emulate him. Now, again, attitude says that I want to be like Christ, and in order to be like Christ, I have to act like him. How do I act like him? Well, I look at the way he was in Scripture, and I try to emulate that. And as I try to emulate that, I become more like him. We talked about this last week, and I, 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 I've told you this story a couple of times, and so I'm, I won't repeat it other than the fact that my vocal teacher, my vocal professor in college, uh, it was very apparent that I was his, his father recognized that I had been trained by his son because I had spent a lot of time with him, and I was doing the things that his son told me to do. And, and that's true today when we spend time doing what Christ tells us to do. When we try to emulate him, we eventually become more and more like him, and it becomes second nature. Remember we've talked about faith is a, is a muscle that has to, be, has to be exercised. If you try to do a lot, have a big amount of faith, it's hard to do if you've not done it before in small increments. It takes a while to build up to be able to trust God fully. And yet God says, no, 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 trust me and, and see what will happen. And, and remember, the whole purpose of what we go through is not f for our exaltation, not necessarily for our humiliation, but for what? For God's glory. Our salvation has in its ultimate purpose the glory of God. Ephesians uh, 1, uh, in several verses says, in Ephesians 1, 6, it says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely has given to the one he loves. In, in verse 12, it says, In order that we who uh, were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, God the Father. Philippians 4, 1.14 says, Who uh, is, deposit, is a deposit guaranteeing, that's the Holy Spirit, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance 
until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The whole purpose of everything that happens, the whole purpose of everything we do ought to bring glory to God. When we give God a black eye, do you think he's, pr he's proud of us? Think he, he appreciates the fact that we give him a black eye? When we take his glory versus giving him his glory, when, we, you know, and I've told you, how many times have I told you, you know, I'm in a, a situation where I need sales, I ask God to provide sales, God does, the very first thing I want to do is take the glory for him. Look what I did. I didn't do anything, God did it. God brought it in. But I'm, I'm the guy that wants to take his glory. All right, so. <clears throat> Let's see here. So we have a language of triumph. In this, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's also an eschatological picture. You know what eschatology is? Anybody? It's a 50 cent word. End times. End times, yeah. Yep. Eschatological end times in talking about God's lordship, Christ's lordship. Will, is he considered Lord of everyone now? Yes. Does every knee bow to him now? No. Will there be a day when he does? When we all do? Yeah. Whether we want to or not? Yeah. Now, hopefully, as Christians, we want to. Just saying. If you're not willing to bow to him, I'm guessing that when we get to that age that, that our arthritis won't bother us nearly as much. It will be easier to bend. Just thinking, you know, I'm hoping. So Romans 10 has a very similar passage. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Some people will voluntarily accept the reality that Jesus is Lord and participate in, in his reign. Others will deny the Lordship, and in the end will be conquered by the Lord himself. And for those, it will be too late to participate in his glory. They'll be destined to punishment. We've talked about that last week. By the way, this, this passage about every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, it seems like it very possibly came out of the Old Testament. You know that? Isaiah 50, uh, 45. One of these days, Gary will convince me that I need to do Isaiah with you. But it's only 66, verse, uh, 66 chapters. So, yeah, we, we, we need to... We need to plan on being here for a long time together as friends if we're going to dig into that in any depth. But in Isaiah 45, verses 23 and 24, it says this, Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, and they will say of me, In the Lord alone are the righteous and the, and is righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, whether on earth, under the earth, or in heaven, will confess. So let's talk about let's talk about some of the ways that we tend to misinterpret this passage. 
there have been a variety of misinterpretations of this over the years. Uh, and, and some good things have happened as a result of that, although I think for the wrong reasons. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi uh, started an ecclesiastical order uh, that he founded, and uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, St. Francis had a huge family inheritance that he disowned. He gave it away, totally, uh, so that he could live poor. Is that what God expects of all of us? Is that what it's, when he, when he in, the, in, the, in the gospel, when Jesus says to the, the rich young ruler, just, you know, ruler, sell all that you have and come and follow me, is that what, is that what, is that for everybody? Are we all supposed to give up our money? If, if we do, I will be collecting your money as you leave. <laughs> Just say, what, what are we supposed to do? Someone? Swear your heart. Swear, swear your heart. Swear the Holy Spirit might tell you to do whatever <clears throat> Now, does that mean that some people might have to give up everything they have? Yes. Yeah. Does it mean that others can keep some of it? Yes. Yeah. So just because we see a passage, we have to understand what the passage is saying. And if we misinterpret it, sometimes we can create all kinds of problems for ourselves. Now, it's not bad what he did, and, and it's, it's done a lot of good in the world. But there is a difference to this. In fact, there is a, there is a whole group in the mid-19th century and, uh, and early 20th century uh, that said that we need to just simply emulate Jesus. We, we don't need to be saved by him. We just need to emulate him. We just need to act like him. Is that enough to get you to heaven? <clears throat> no, that was the fight that the fundamentalists had against the liberals of their day in the early 20th century and started actually in the 19th century. Some of the German philosophers. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. But that would be, seem to be like suggesting that you can you know, be saved by works. Yeah, you can kind of earn your way yeah, into heaven. Yeah. Right. If I just am good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sure. Why yeah, not? And that's where a lot of those, some, not all, but a few people felt hopeful of God. Yeah. Just about helping and doing good for others, which are good deeds. Well, just turning over a new leaf does not necessarily get you saved, does it? Doing all the good things, you know, that's one of the problems. Yeah, yeah, you do. And according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and the problem is so often we stop at 8 and 9, 
It's by grace we've been saved through faith. That not of ourselves is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And we like to stop right there. It's all grace. It's a gift, man. I don't have to do a thing. And then you read 10 and you go, oh, crap. For it's been planned for us to do good works since the beginning of time. We would do the good works as a result of our salvation. God planned for us to do that. It's what we talk about in, when we get over to chapter 3 and verse 10 where it says, and all of us want to share in the, the, you know, the, uh, the power of the resurrection. No one wants to share in the fellowship of the suffering. And all of you want to be in the have the same power of the resurrection resurrected Christ? Yeah, I do, man. I can I can whip up a fury over that. I can get you to march and go, you know, take storm the towers. But the problem is that you don't get the power without first suffering with Jesus. It's funny though; you have to die to self to become resurrected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Christ, Christ's mission basically did his, set, set, his salvation was basically three things. His death, burial, and resurrection. That's done. It's the sanctification process that we all get to be with. God has to change us to continue to do that. But he keeps testing our hearts in those areas over and over. There was an old pastor who used to say uh, this. He used to say, I have been saved. I am being saved. And one day I will finally be completely saved. And there's a sense to which that's true. That's the, the aspect of sanctification. There's the process, the, the, the physical act, I accepted Christ. I did that. I believe that he died for my sins. He rose again. That he made a way for me to have a relationship with God the Father. And then the process of my being saved is my sanctification. And the fulfillment of that is when I'm completely made into the image of Christ is the fullness of my salvation. And that comes at a later date. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, when I heard it put one way, um, what Jesus did is took care of the penalty of sin. Okay. That's a good way of putting it. I'll have to use that three times so I can steal it. Basically, if you look at even after Jesus comes back and establishes the sanctification, it's fine until Satan's loosed again. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a.
Knowing God's important and knowing, it's not just knowing about him, but knowing him personally. You know, it's one thing to know all the stats. That's good. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I followed the, the Tigers religiously. I don't much anymore, but I did when I was a kid. And I knew, I knew all the stats of all the players. You know, I, I kept up with it. I, I, I could tell you everything about them. But I didn't know a single one. It wasn't like a single one was my friend. I just knew a lot about them. That's different than being than actually knowing someone. Knowing someone means you have to spend time with them. You know, it's one thing to know a stat about somebody. It's one thing to know all you know to 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 go through a Bible doctrines course or a theology course or whatever and say, okay, now I know all about God. No, you know, you just barely started. <laughs> It'll be a lifelong experience for you to, to understand who God is. I'm still amazed every, at the at how little I actually know about who God is. Keep in mind that uh, when the church was growing its most rapid in the first century, there were no Bibles and there were no churches and most part no priests. It was this was church. It was yep. people talking to people. Yep. Uh, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know God. I think one of the things that uh, um, I was asked a question this week, well, several of us were asked a question this week about wisdom. And uh, uh, one of the things that I, I found interesting about people who have godly wisdom is that sometimes they're not, their education, their formal education is not necessarily the greatest. It, it doesn't take a degree for you to be wise in God's, uh, in, 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 in godly living and, and being able to give godly advice. In fact, one of the, the most godly men that I uh, had the opportunity to serve with when I was, when I was pastoring out in, in St. Louis was a guy who was a high-low operator. He actually was a crane operator is what he was. He was a crane operator. And, and he had barely had a, a high school education. But that man was as wise as could be when it came to understanding the scripture and, and having insight into who he was and how we should live our lives for God. And I went to him a lot. He was, he was well worth my time getting to know because Bill was one of those guys that just spent, he just dripped godliness. He spent so much time studying the word and doing things that God said, this is, what, this, is how you, this is how you live. So when it came that I had a question about something, I was like, well, you know, I'm not sure about this. What do you think, Bill? So, yeah, godliness comes from spending time with him. It doesn't come from getting a degree. A degree, all a degree can do is end up actually puffing you up. I know a lot of guys that ended up with multiple degrees, and they're actually worse off in, as far as, in my opinion, as how they live after having 
all the advanced degrees than they were before they went to seminary. I think we have to reverse the scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a sense to which we can quench the spirit, and sometimes our degrees get us in trouble. You know, so we think we know so much, and then God has to come along and show us that we don't. <laughs> it could be a rather humbling experience. There's another aspect of this uh, that tends to get people confused, and it's this idea of. Uh, there's some that believe that this passage teaches that God, that Christ was not uh, pre-existent, that he was a man who became God as a result of living a life that was uh, worthy of, of God accepting him, which is totally not what this passage reads. If you read it straight out, it, you have to really do some gymnastics. I, I think that what happens is that we, we get confused over the, the form of God is the same as the image of God. G, man was made in the image of God, but he was not made in the form of God. And uh, uh, again, uh, I'll, I'll go back to the Council of Nicaea, which is approximately 325 AD, in which the, the majority of the church stated and said, affirmed what they already believed. It wasn't like they made a decision and now we're going to believe this. They affirmed this is what orthodoxy is. And they said that Jesus, the Son of God, is of the same essence and substance as God the Father. Up to that point in time, there had been those that said, no, he wasn't. And uh, that creates a problem because then he's not, fully God. Therefore, can he fully substitute for man? And if he's more than man but less than God, he's a demagogue. You know, he's like Hercules. You know, and, and so he has frailties and some good stuff and some bad stuff. And that's not what, that's not who God is. That's not who Jesus Christ was. Yeah, Bob. I say, yeah. Uh, Supreme God or Triangle God or whatever. But there's God, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right. three of them are one. Right. Correct. It's all one, you know. Yeah, and that's one of those things that gets kinda of, it gets kinda of tricky real fast. And and you can kinda, of, you know, blow your mind. Some people have said to, to understand the to try to understand the Trinity, you'll go crazy. But if you don't accept the Trinity, you'll you'll burn in hell yeah so there's a there's a struggle with that we have with that well uh again without getting too deeply into this past this this uh mormons believe that that you can create a um 
um, a world that you yourself um, are the god of the world in, in, in essence that uh, to some degree that's what Christ is is doing uh, with this world and uh, it, it is a form of is a form of Arianism uh, which much like the Jehovah's Witnesses where they think that that Christ is he is less than God the Father but more than man so it can get confusing really quickly in some of these cases and I've had long discussions I had a really couple of really good friends that were uh, Mormons in fact my my wife's uh, mother was good friends with a lady who had come to know Christ but prior to coming to know Christ married a gentleman whose last name just happened to be Smith and he is a direct descendant of Joseph Smith and not with the Mormons out in Salt Lake but with the ones down in uh, Missouri and Arkansas that stayed down there because the other ones went off with Brigham Young but there was a group that stayed loyal to the family much like the difference between Shiites and Sunnis in in Islam you know those that follow the family of Muhammad and those that follow the leaders of the, the movement you know to the exclusion of the of the family so yeah it, it gets it gets crazy after a while doesn't it um, you know there's a there's a whole aspect of this too in which we get confused and we start arguing about things that are that are not that are not really important. Um, if I'm going to apply this in the last few minutes we've got here, the difficulty of this trying to fit this this passage into a 21st century believer is that Paul did not leave his description of Christ's. Uh, astonishing refusal to dominate in the realm of abstract speculation. He, he, he in, instead he advises the church in Philippi, and through them the church of us today to follow Christ's example. The church and the believer in, individually must adopt adopt the incarnation, uh, an incarnational demeanor. We, we must figure out how it means for us. And in, and in Western society, this is really, really tough because we want to value things like, I don't know, wealth, glamour, power, prestige uh, are the accepted ways of achieving ends here in, in the West. And that's a struggle because the, all of that revolves around what? Self. Yeah. So, so you know, um, it's easy for us in churches that we represent to think that our own way is the acceptable, uh, acceptable and the dominant, uh, and to dominate others in order to achieve our own ends. It's easy to see that in this, uh, in, uh, that those that are involved in the prosperity gospel, give me your money and I'll make sure that God blesses you. And they, they sometimes prey on our concerns, our fears, our trepidation, our, our, our perhaps even our superstition of withholding money, of giving it to God. Because if we don't, 
give it to God, then God won't bless us. And that's not necessarily the case. We should probably ponder whether the same principles are at work at some of our church building campaigns that the prosperity gospel does or membership drives. What, you know, are, are these genuine efforts to see the gospel advance or are they ways of enhancing the prestige and comfort of our own group? When we build a building, why do we build it? Do we build it just for functionality or we do build it for beauty? and to show off how important we are. Now, I, I can't speak for every church. And I, I'm not even sure that I can speak for Kensington since I'm not a Kensington, you know, I'm not on staff. But let me, let me give you a couple of questions to throw out when you think about these things. Here's some, some questions to think about. Regardless of what it is for you personally or whether it is for you as a church, uh, collectively, is the strategy that you're working on designed to meet the needs of every sector of human society to hear the gospel or only the parts of society that you're most comfortable with? In other words, if you're a well-to-do person and the, the, the strategy you're designing to reach people for the gospel, is it only designed to reach people that look like you that act like you, that think like you? Or are you reaching out to the whole community? Would the poorest person in the city assume that a new church building was a place for him or her to come? Or would they assume that they probably wouldn't be welcome there? And if so, are we designing churches with the wrong ideas in mind? Yeah. Well, I know that there are certain, you know, if you walk into certain churches here in the area, you walk into some that are very opulent. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. They look amazing. And then you walk into a church here, and this is basically just a big, a, a big warehouse that's been put to use, you know. So, and, and now. Yeah, well, yeah. Orion was literally a warehouse that we bought and made into a well, I'm telling you, after just seeing a bunch of these churches and cathedrals in Europe yeah and things of beauty yes they are they weren't just functional buildings or no gorgeous monuments. now again in in all fairness to to the the early church that did this the church was the center of the universe in these cities and, uh, and they believed that what they were doing was doing something that would honor God and give God glory in building these edifices. But I had a neighbor, uh, I, uh, <clears throat> for the, the second time, I've made a, a vast mistake in my great room and I spilled coffee on light colored carpet. And so my, one of my neighbors is, uh, has a, uh, carpet cleaning and restoration service so I called Joe to come over and uh, yesterday he took the spot that I had spilled the coffee in and, and cleaned it and hopefully it'll look better now and I won't be in any more of a doghouse than I was um, but in the process we were talking about he had just come back from Italy and I said so how'd you enjoy it you know what were the highlights and he said you know we spent time in Tuscany and we spent time 
in Rome. And he says, you know, he says, I didn't care for Rome at all. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, I went and visited the Vatican. Now, Joe's a, a Catholic. His family is very involved in the Catholic Church. In fact, his, his son and daughter-in-law were kind of missionaries for the Catholic Church for a while and now are, are, are uh, in public education. But for a number of years, they, they, they lived on a, a missionary salary, you know, from the, the Catholic Church. So uh, he says, you know, I went to the Vatican. He says it was a six-hour tour. I said, holy smokes, that's a long time. And he says, you know what? He says, I was so turned off. He says, I looked at all of the beauty in there and all of the opulence. He says, and then we went over to Assisi, and I saw the, the cathedral that was built to honor St. Francis. And he says, it was so plain and so, in his, his, his thought process, so much more godly, you know, because it didn't have all the opulence that, that mm -hmm. uh, St. Peter's Basilica had. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a tough call, but it's a call that each of us, with our relationship in a church, has to stand to God, before God to answer for it if we were in leadership. Or in a personal level, it's, it's something we have to answer to God before. Are we doing this for our glory or for God's glory? And then the last question that I have is, do evangelism teams give more effort to affluent neighborhoods more than to the poverty-stricken communities? Where do you go? You know, it was a joke, but I can't tell you how many guys said, you know, I think I'm called to Birmingham to plant a church there, not in Detroit. Well, why? Well, you think maybe it's because that's a wealthy area? And yet it's harder, what's the scripture say? It's harder for people who have money to come to know the Lord than it is for the people that are poor. Yeah, he did. Which is kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> it says a lot about... Yeah, I pushed it out. $15 gas giveaway on Saturday. So I went up there and got my free gas. Oh, yeah. And it was for an assembly of God or something. Mm -hmm. That church on Sunrise Chain. Okay. But they had 10,000 small gifts, so they distributed it in the community. $10 free, no, $15 free gas. Wow. So I got $15. Good for you. Yeah. But, you know, membership, they want people to join it. Well, I'm sure that they're trying to convince people to come visit their church. Yeah, yeah. Oh, are they renovating? Is that the uh, the Assembly of God Lakeside, Lakeside Assembly? Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend that used to attend there. Yeah. Uh, oh, cool. Uh, it's on uh, north of, uh, it's on Shaner, north of um, Hall, between the uh, Hall and I think 21. So uh, the strategies of dominance within the world have so thoroughly permeated, I think, the Western church that if the word became flesh today, many churches might not even know of his existence. Isn't it though? Well, if he were to if he were to come today, you know, it's if he were to come today, would we be the Pharisees? Yeah. 
Or would we be the Sadducees? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about that. We're doomed. We're, you know, um, but yet, you know, the Holy Son comes, and that, and I know that's a hard thing for you know when you uh, talk to very Jewish people that are you know um, Orthodox and mm -hmm. strong and holy in the Torah, and it, it just blows your mind that he would endure. No, he certainly didn't. And remember, God, uh, Paul, and the other writers of the scripture tell us to emulate Christ. And that is that, you know, Christ, Christ, were, if we are going to be good Christians, we need to figure out how to stop fighting among ourselves. We, we need to figure out a way that we can agree on areas that we are in agreement on. What are the orthodox, what are the core principles of orthodoxy that make us a believer, that make us a Christian? And then let's not worry about the color of carpet or whether or not we should speak in tongues or whether it's right to say hallelujah or alleluia, which one church split over in St. Louis over because it was a big deal for them. Or, or whether or not Calvinism or Wesleyan approaches to theology are the important ones. What we need to do is we need to figure out what is it that we agree on and we can come together on so that even in the midst of our diversity, the world sees that we are one. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you're at war with each other, now, what it says in Scripture? If you fight among each other. No. What does is, what is Jesus Christ pray in, in John 17? He prays for unity. Are we any more unified today than we were in the first century? Maybe not. But we should be. We should be. Let's strive for the best in our lives. Let's strive to figure out ways where we can agree on things. And in areas we don't agree on things, we're going to allow them some grace. We don't have to agree with them, but some of these people we're going to see in heaven and we're going to be really surprised at who's there and who isn't. I thought so-and-so would be here. Well, how come they're not? Well, maybe they were never a follower of Christ in the first place. But didn't they do miracles for God? So what? Unity. Unity. God wants us to be like Christ. Christ loves us. Christ died for us. Christ is willing to sacrifice for us. What are you willing to sacrifice for? And who are you willing to sacrifice for? All right, let's close. Father, thanks for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Thank you for the way that your word encourages us and frankly sometimes spanks us. Um, I pray that you would be with each of us as we seek to follow you. Help us to desire to emulate your son. And in so doing so, learn to become more like him. 
We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to spend time in your word. We pray you keep us safe until we are able to come back together again in, in two weeks and to uh, celebrate what you have done for us in the meantime. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.